Big Fluff. I thought you were like me, Charles Wallace. I thought you were special. And you are. You passed the test. It's as simple as that. Simple as twice one is two, twice two is four, twice three is six, twice four is eight, twice five is 10, twice six is 12, twice seven is 14. What are you doing? Twice eight is 16. We'd like to see our father now. You got it. I'll take you right to him. Charles Wallace, take my hand now. Please. No thanks. Hey, everybody. I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Andy McIntyre. And this is Silver Linings Playback, the podcast where we watch maligned movies and look for a silver lining. Yeah, uh, and I feel like this is another one that might be a little unfairly maligned, or at least unfairly maligned as much as it was. Yeah, Uh, I would agree with that for sure. Uh, And this is, just to to set it up real quick, we are closing out the month of June, which I don't know if you knew this, Andy, but it has five weeks in it, so... Five Mondays. Yeah, five Mondays. Uh, to be fair, May had 17 weeks, I think. So Yeah, yeah. But if you were, like, say, doing a podcast and trying to get ahead of your scheduling, you might not have realized there were five Mondays. In. Yeah, you might. And we might be scrambling to get this done <laughs> to stay on theme uh, right before the deadline. But we're not those guys. No, at no, all. no. If, not us. We know. That's why we're telling you. We, we knew that. In were case fun. you have an idea yeah. about getting ahead of yourself on. <laughs> a non-time-sensitive pop culture-related podcast. <laughs> Look at the calendar, friends. Check that's, your Mondays. That's our tip from us. <laughs> uh, but, I, I, you know, I will say that I'm glad it happened uh, because so the movie that we are watching today uh, is the Ava DuVernay film, A Wrinkle in Time. Uh, it, it is finishing out our month of films that they hoped would be franchises uh, that... Uh, did not that didn't happen and this is based on a book series that i think there are four of them right That's, there are five there are as five facts okay five so, books uh, um so, so the, yeah i yeah i love the books i'm an i'm a he was a huge fan of them like you know read them when i was a kid and unapologetically love them and i don't need to apologize because one it's my opinion so f off and two they're <laughs> great books yeah no one is telling you to apologize for like. Listen, I'm books. sorry if you don't like it, but I'm a fan of Madeline Lengel and uh, her uh, Time series, uh, especially A Wrinkle in Time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so uh, yeah, this came out and uh, it it got like kind of swallowed up. Like I remember the previews for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was kind of looking because I, I was trying to figure it out. And I mean, they said that, like, from what I was reading, the total like production cost with advertising and everything of this movie was two hundred fifty million dollars, and it uh, made around a hundred million. So, you know, an, an unfortunate other way to put that would be that it lost about one hundred and thirty million. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, uh, Ava DuVernay has the distinction of being 
both the first uh, African-American female filmmaker to make a movie that earned $100 million at the box office, but also lost $100 million at the box office. Yeah, which is, that's very unfortunate and not deserved. <laughs> like No, not at all. And I mean, like, I hate to say that racism might have played a factor. It's but It's possible. I know that, like, uh, so one of the things that people were upset about... Uh, the casting of the the lead actress in this film um, because in the books um, she is not it's a white family it is a white family and so there was like that choice to so like I don't know if that played in also like weirdly interestingly the when I was looking it up when uh, this film premiered it actually opened at second at the box office uh to uh do you know what was number one at the box office i do actually it was black panther yeah so yes so weirdly uh black panther which was having its uh you know unprecedented like success at the box office might have also uh played in but also yeah i think there were a lot of things at play with this film it's it you know but people just for whatever reason did like and it it had a huge drop off after its opening week i think it opened Mm -hmm. at like uh 32 million if i'm looking um and then kind of dropped off uh pretty steeply after the first week yeah to the point that i know that some of the overseas markets they released it directly to video on demand to save money from doing the theatrical run um i will say like up front it's not a great movie i think by any stretch but it's a good movie i mean it's it's watchable it's fun yeah there's a lot going on with it I don't want to get too far ahead of, you know, to get to the the silver lining already. Uh, but I'll say for me, I, I thought this movie, it kind of started out slow. And, you know, the first act is a little scattered uh, just in general. But I, I actually for me, when it when it kicked in and like when, uh, you know, probably like the second and third act of the film, I actually really enjoyed like I thought it ended a lot stronger then it started uh and I, like once they actually started going to other planets and, and exploring you know all of that stuff it, it worked like the setup felt you know like there was a lot you know and that's it, kind of unfortunate when you're uh, trying to adapt uh books that it's it felt like they were trying to introduce a lot of stuff early on and it felt sort of messy and was hard to really like there just wasn't a lot of momentum in the beginning of the movie Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. And I thought it, it picked up a lot as it went along and, uh, you know, as it sort of streamlined what story it was telling and, and got to the end. Uh, I enjoyed the end, like the second half of the movie a lot more than the first half. Yeah, I think. Um, and it's one of those things. Adapting beloved material is, I think. Adapting is hard anyway from a screenwriting standpoint, um, but especially adapting beloved material is that there's a large swath of people. I mean, this uh, Wrinkle in Time, it won the Newbery Award for best, you know, children's literature. And it's it, it's a beloved series. It's been out for, you know, almost 60 years at the point that the movie came out um, that people have their ideas about what it should be, what it shouldn't be and all of that. So, like, you're fighting against that and... I, of course, can accept that books and movies are different media and have to do things differently. Uh, some people don't accept that that premise. Um, and you're always... And that's a problem. Well, it, it's tough. Anytime you adapt a book, it's tough because 
you know, what's great about books is you read them and you picture them in your mind and they're whatever you want them to be. The thing with movies, which are a different medium, is every choice that your brain made when reading the book, uh, someone actually has to make. So they have to decide how everybody, like how the, the characters look, how they're dressed, how the world looks, like all of the visual stuff that you like. You know, depending on the author, some authors are very into describing things. Uh, You know, I'm looking at you, Lord of the Rings, and how much (laughs) you love to tell me what trees look like. But, uh, you know, it's kind of up there, like how much an author is going to describe. But there's a lot of details that need to be filled in by a filmmaker that, you know, people tend to go like, that's not how I imagine that character. or That's not how I picture that world. Or like, you're just always going to be fighting someone's imagination. But the problem is my imagination might have pictured it completely different than you you know so i will say like um and we were talking a little bit before we started the this podcast i think like my big complaint with the this movie is that everything's just like sterile like is everything just is um even like the worlds that are supposed to be like especially sterile like when they go to camisots and everything's sort of uniform and conformist and everything but like even the when they're in the quote unquote like planet Earth real world whatever you want to call it like the space doesn't feel lived in and doesn't feel occupied by people kind of to me and it feels like it it just it just felt it didn't feel real in not like a fantastical way but it, like it just didn't feel like it was grounded in anything. I I agree with you about Earth. I I liked the the stuff I liked with, the Camazot stuff. I will yeah. say that, yeah. Yeah, that's for me like, you know, I I actually like unapologetically love like as soon as we got to the part where uh little kids were standing on the street in unison bouncing balls and then in unison all their moms came out and like called them in. Like it, that I thought worked really well. Just I loved the yeah. way it looked, like I I loved the tone. They did a great job of one of the mothers inviting them in for dinner and just like really tapping into that primal, like you understand, like it it kind of feels like it's like a throwback to even like Greek mythology or something like that of like, do not go in that house and eat that food. Like you, your brain immediately recognizes this is bad and you're not sure why, but it, it really, I don't know, synchronicity and like scary Stepford (laughs) <laughs> you know group thing yeah. always is great and and that's to me is like when i really started uh loving what was happening in the movie was like once we went there and then forward and that was a, it was a weird thing is um i so, sort of feel like with this movie in the first part like leading up to when they go to Kamazots and face the it and everything um it, prior to that i feel like they got the words of the book right on the screen in a lot of ways but got the tone wrong. Like the tone just didn't feel similar to what the book was trying to get across. And then this part is where they made a lot of um, editorial changes, but got the tone exactly right to what it was in the book. Yeah. It was sort of an interesting thing. Um, I didn't ask, have you read the books? Did you read these? I, I was honestly trying to remember that. Like, I feel like I, like my brain thinks that I read a wrinkle in time, but I don't have a strong memory of it. So like, okay. it feels like the kind of thing I would have read, but I don't, I can't say that I have a strong memory of reading it. So it's entirely possible that I didn't. So either way, I'm not helpful because I don't remember the books. So, okay. No, but I'm, I'm just saying just for the sake of like sort of discussing it, but that was sort of a weird thing um, that like, 
it, there were, other than some like costuming choices with the way the Mrs. W's were presented, um, those that was a little bit different um, than the books. But other than that, it was sort of like kind of a little bit beat for beat and pretty consistent. But then they made some editorial differences that in the second half of the book, in the second half of the movie, rather, that it the plot beats don't happen in the same way, but the way they conveyed them and the way they did them and everything, like it had the same tone. And I think that that makes for, that's the ideal adaptation, I think. Um, because if you're consciously making the same, like this is my thing that I'm doing that is it, based on this beloved source material. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons like to talk about like the Harry Potter books, one of the reasons that Prisoner of Azkaban stands up as one of the better movies is that he did an adaptation. He didn't just try to put the book on screen, um, you know, that uh, he did his own thing with it. And it's sort of the same thing that Ava DuVernay did in the second half, which I think is the more compelling half of the movie, too. Also, fun fact about the Harry Potter books. Do you know that no one wrote them? That yeah, it's, it's a, weird. It's a weird thing. They just thing. exist. Yeah, they just appeared one day as if by magic. That's if you yeah, didn't know that. As if by magic. It's uh, crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, and then someone made movies about them. Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe made movies about them. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think... Um, I think one of the things, if, you know, because uh, typically on this podcast, we sort of go through some of the downsides of the movie and the reasons that are that it's maligned. Um, this coming from, again, this is sort of like the, not like a, the book's better, but there were some weird editorial choices that they made too. Um, like in the book, Charles Wallace isn't adopted, but he is in the movie. Um, and I don't know why they made that change. Like that doesn't... Hey. Maybe what? it was casting. They couldn't find an actor that they felt like looked like it would be the right age and did the right thing, or they wanted to cast uh, the actor that they did. Um, it was interesting, like that, though, because, well, yeah, like not knowing that, uh, I, I did like like it for, and I, I guess I don't want to spoil it too much at the end, but uh, it worked in the end because I felt like it informed his character that he was adopted. Like it kind of made his relationship with his dad different from her relationship with her dad, which I thought kind of created an interesting conflict in the end. So I, d I don't know if that's why they made the choice, but I actually did think that was a... Well, because the way they did in the book was the fact that, um, you know, that Alexander Murray, uh, he went away, he disappeared as soon, almost immediately after Charles Wallace was born. So they never had that face-to-face -face interaction and never had any sort of personal connection. Whereas, you know, Meg had the personal connection with her father because she was, you know, eight or whatever when she disappeared, if I'm mathing that correctly. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, but also, you know, had was there for the formative years of Charles Wallace's young life um, to bring him along. But yeah, I don't know. Um, although like sort of flipping it again, one of the changes that I think I really did like. Um, so, and this is, I think, another weird sort of Hollywood thing to also bring back Harry Potter a little bit. But um, at the end, when they're confronting the it, it's a giant brain in a jar, like Mother Brain from the Metroid series in the book. <laughs> um, and then in the movie, they're like in what clearly looks like the synapses of its brain. Yeah. And I thought that was a really cool way to do it. But um, in the fifth Harry Potter book, there's a scene where they confront all a bunch of brains in jars that they cut out of the movie. So maybe just Holly's like, nah, these 
brains and jars aren't going to play in the Midwest. It, it's, it's what we've always said. If we've said one thing on this show, it's that brains in jars don't play in the Midwest. And you know that's right. Uh, that is, <laughs> If there's one thing we've said every episode of this podcast. It comes up surprisingly uh, yeah, like in every show. <laughs> maybe we should get away from sci-fi movies, but I don't know. Maybe we that's also... Some- we should stop talking about Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> we should stop, I'm, but I can't. I just love that little guy so much. <laughs> Somehow he always relates to every every movie. He's you know he's the every, he's the every brain. Uh, but uh, but yeah, like I again not knowing that that was a change, I I did like the way that they did the end of the movie. Uh, I so for me, and I I think maybe you're touching at this, but I, I'll see if you agree with this of. I was trying to pinpoint it and it from like I can't really decide if I think it's editing or if I think it's just like uh something with the pace or or just like but the the opening of the movie just kind of like I feel like it meanders a bit like it just doesn't there's not a real sense of urgency like there's just kind of we're being introduced to a lot of ideas but even like when uh the three misses like show up there's still kind of like that feels like when we should like kick into the story and then it doesn't right. it doesn't kick in like for a it while. Should, it should be that inciting event and it isn't. Yeah. And that was one of the things um that was sort of from the book too. Uh cuz in the books um uh Miss Witch or no, uh Miss Whatsit, sorry. Uh in the movie played by Reese Witherspoon. Um the Miss Whatsit in the book is sort of like is pictured sort of like a sort of like a bag lady like they think that this is the person that's been like stealing clothes from clotheslines and all that. And then Charles Wallace brings her home similarly to in the book. And it's not, you know, gorgeous Reese Witherspoon wearing a toilet paper dress. (laughs) Um, And so that like just some of those weird tonal things, but um, yeah, like it felt a little bit like, it's like, all right, we need to get these characterizations out, but I don't really care about it. I want to get to the stuff that I really loved about the book, which is the later part. Yeah. It's sort of how it felt watching the movie a little bit. Yeah. Which I mean, it's a two hour movie. So I, I do think you're up against like, you know, and, and it's a movie for kids. You're, you're kind of pushing how long you can make a movie like this anyway. So like, I, right. I kind of understand that of like, well, I want to get to the sci-fi parts of this that are like the, the cool part, but yeah, I, I just think, yeah, like it, the movie just kind of digs a hole for itself a bit in the first act. And then I, I for me, I, I felt like it did come out of it. Like I, I liked the the later stuff, but I, I guess I can see a little bit how it m- might have lost people early on, you know, and they just kind of checked out. Uh, and it, I was wondering, too, like I kind of, you know, I like I said, part of me feels like I don't know if it's an editing thing or like. But the other thing is like. I kind of feel like it's a little bit of like a music thing too. Cause if you, you know, like, and again, this is not like my expertise by any means, but like, um, you know, a lot of times, like if you get a good composer, like, you know, and you hear stories of even like, uh, the original, uh, star Wars, a new hope, like the first cut of it before it had John Williams music, uh, didn't work, you know? So, right. And I like the soundtrack is kind of, uh, kind of not, really much in this movie you know there's a couple of like uh where they actually use music you know like so not music but you know what i mean like songs like with lyrics like pop songs kind of uh and then there's a little bit of like orchestral stuff but yeah. it's just never and like I, yeah it's not a big score like no and i feel like this is the type of movie that 
if it had like a Michael Giacchino or um, like an Alan Silvestri type composer um, or even the guy who did uh, the Black Panther movie, which probably is why he didn't do this movie, but <laughs> uh, probably being filmed. Uh, yeah. What is this guy? I'm, uh, it's, it's, I'm blanking on his name, but yeah, he, uh, um, but either way, but like, I think those are the type of people that could have gotten the right amount of like whimsy and gravitas uh, that could have made this like the, t- and I, but at the same time, like, yeah. And I thought the use of pop songs uh, and like new pop songs written exclusively for the movie um, made it feel a little bit like Disney Channel movie to me. Yeah. At times. Yeah. Um, and they just, they didn't, like I said, I, I think that the movie just felt like it was, you know, like it, it didn't feel as grandiose as it should have felt or like, and, and again, like the, the songs, it wasn't just that they were using pop music, but like the songs weren't really, I don't know. They, they just didn't like hit the way that they should. Yeah, and like, uh, like also when they're on the the planet Uriel, it sort of felt like a music video rather than a part of the movie. Yeah, Ludwig Göransson, by the way, because I was going to Ludwig Göransson, yeah, yeah. Uh, who won an Academy Award for yeah that soundtrack? You know, he's great, yep. and uh, yeah, started in TV, like did uh, Community and uh, mm-hmm. some other TV shows. Anyway, not the point, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just I'm with like I just felt like yeah something that had big you know swelling orchestral like you know music added to this would have i think like made the movie feel like it had a bit more you know uh momentum to it you know especially early on you know and i really like when the missus starts showing up like you could have played some music that i feel like would have really like if they had a theme yeah you know the way some of the best characters or the best segments of movies have themes if there was like a the Mrs. theme the Miss W's theme like that would have been yeah yeah I think that would have like helped a lot but they you know they, like so all right I feel like we're is there any like do we want to I I'm good to start pivoting to things that I like but I'm trying to think if there's anything else we want to um no, I mean, I think we, I think we hit on some of the, some of the reasons. I think some of the both legitimate and illegitimate reasons that this movie was maligned. Um, so, I, think, I mean, it's definitely it has its faults for sure. But I think when we start pivoting to, well, actually, I'll, I think I'm going to mention one other thing that is uh, surprisingly not a silver lining in this movie, uh, and that's Michael Pena. Is is I would say in almost every movie I've seen him in, without exception, he is one of the bright spots. Um, and this movie, like he's not bad, but, um, it's, it's not as special as his performances. I feel like usually are, uh, it was just sort of there. Yeah. I thought like the, the scenes that he, uh, are in, I really liked, but I'm, I'm kind of with you that like, I, it wasn't him particularly, like, I don't think he was doing anything. Uh, I love the way he was styled, by the way. I will definitely yeah, give the... credit to that. Uh, and I loved what was happening in those scenes. But yeah, it was as far as Michael Pena performances go, uh, you know. When you not... think about the type of like memorable things that he does in like the Ant-Man movies in. Um... Jeez. Uh... There's this really terrible movie, 30 Minutes or Less, but he's really great <laughs> in it. <laughs> That is a bad movie based on a true story, right? Like, I know, or yeah. loosely based, yeah, yeah, inspired yeah. by a true story. Yes, based um, on another example standards. is like uh, the terrible Best Picture winner Crash. Oh God, um, he's great in it. 
Sure, I'll take your word. I I saw Crash. <laughs> I tried to forget everything about that movie. As as well you should. Um, but he's like a really bright spot in the movie. Um, you know, The Martian. Like he plays a, a bit yeah. a small part in that, but he's really good in that too. Like uh, he's one of those actors that like it has a very unique charisma to him that I feel like surprisingly didn't show out as much in this movie as it has in other things, but still fine. But yeah. I think that like you could have cast a many different actors and they could have done the same thing. And the scenes would have been, would have been the same. Whereas in other movies, like I don't know who else could have played his role in like Ant-Man, you know, like I don't I, think anyone else could have done it and like done it like the same. No, caliber. no. I mean, his recaps in Ant-Man, like the Ant-Man movies are fantastic. Uh, right. I sorry, in my brain I was just wondering. I was like, I wonder what would happen if you just switched Michael Pena with Zach Galifianakis in this movie. Hmm. I know. I just that just occurred to me, but I was like, I I at least entertain it. Like, I think that might be the better move. In all yeah. honesty, yeah, because I like because I I always love Zach Galifianakis when he shows up, and I Same. enjoyed him in this movie. But like, I feel like I don't know. I feel like he would have done something with the character that Michael Pena plays that would have been like really interesting and i think Pena would have been a great like you know i think it would have been i don't know i would have tried it so um that just brings me up with one sort of interesting um plot difference between the book and the movie um in the book um when charles wallace gets taken by the it um meg and her father and everybody get kicked out of camazot's and they have to work their way back there to save him. So there's sort of this like, instead of them just like being there the whole time and like sucking up the courage and maybe it was a runtime thing, but I think that that could have been like, we went through this horrible ordeal. No, we have to go back through it again in order to save Charles Wallace instead of just keep going through and take him with us. But I really love the scene at the end when in the sort of synapses and the neurons um, was really great. So. I also did like tiny nitpick at this. I did like kind of lose track of where uh, the young, handsome boy uh, was Calvin, Calvin, like where he ended up in all of that. Cause like, I, I understood that their, their dad uh, transported back, but I, I, I assume that the idea is that he took Calvin with him, but like, I felt like that happened off screen or like, I don't, I didn't... yeah, it's, it got, it happened. It got done away with that. It got edited away. They, yeah. they traveled by edit. Cause I had that, like, just when they were getting ready to, to come back to earth, I was like, shouldn't he be with them? Like, cause I, I didn't know where he was. I had lost track. Right. Uh, but you know, whatever. That's just a oh, thing. And, that and one more small quibble, and this is very personal. Um, so, uh, I, I think I have no issue with the fact that it was, um, an interracial couple and that, uh, Meg Murray was, uh, a biracial in the movie. But in the book, the mom is supposed to be a gorgeous redhead. And as a ginger, you know, I wanted to see that. And Calvin was also supposed to be a ginger in the book and was not a ginger in the movie. Um, so that's that's, you know, so you you feel bias. like that you were robbed. Uh, see, but I also I I really liked Mrs. Murray. The, the oh, casting. she was great. Gugu uh, Mbatha-Raw is a great actress. So she's fantastic. I, yeah, she was. I great. think what we should have done is dyed Chris Pine's hair red to make it up to you. You know, he's a handsome fella, and <laughs> might even look handsomer as a ginger. I don't know. 
Uh, but I, I think this is a good segue to talk about uh, what is a silver lining for me, which is I did really love this cast. Like I thought, yeah, it was great. Yeah, and like Storm Reed, which first of all, A plus uh, oh. name. A plus name. Yeah, like it's just amazing. Like you you deserve an amazing career just for the fact that your name is Storm Reed and I want to read that in posters for like <laughs> the next like few decades. But no, I thought she was really great. Like I, I thought she was a really good Meg. Uh you know, like played it really interesting. Like it's really difficult to get child actor, you know, young actors that can carry a movie and that are good. Uh and I thought that she did that, you know, and I like I thought that she was really good casting, and I also... Yeah, cause I think uh, she was about 15 when this movie came out. Yeah. Right around there. Um, uh, but no, she's... I think I think she did a great job. Um, and I and also... Uh, Derek McCabe, who played uh, Charles Wallace, like, he was, you know, like, shockingly good <laughs> in this yeah. movie. Like, you know, and, and I don't... Again, I don't want to give too much away if people haven't read the books or seen it, but, like, he... Uh, I really enjoyed him in the first half of the movie, and then but, in the second half of the movie, loved him even more. Um, yeah, I mean, he was Kirsten Dunst in *Interview with the Vampire*. Good, you yeah, know, like really young actors giving really beyond their years performances. And and again, both of them like the movie like needs them both to be as good as they are. <laughs> it's because Charles Wallace is a tough character because, um, and I don't think this gives away too many spoilers, but he. Um, is very clearly wise beyond beyond his years and special in ways that um, you just don't understand. Um, and you could play that like with a typically precocious child actor, but the way that um, Dylan McCabe did was, just... I like because he, he played it like there's a tendency with a character like that to play it, you know, like it's young Sheldon or something, you know. Yeah, but he played him really like outgoing and really like joyous and i thought that was a really cool choice that like he was sort of like you know joyously uh tone deaf to like what was going on around him like, yeah which in is a way like, that a more he, fun... he understood so far beyond what was going on that he was like no this is how you should be acting in this situation yeah so yeah. i no i thought that was really fun like both of them i really enjoyed uh and also like uh, the misses, you know, like uh, I thought Reese Witherspoon was great. Like she was a really, yeah. she was a really fun choice. Uh, Oprah, like I just, there's something great about making Oprah like a, a you know forty or fifty foot tall monolith that just like <laughs> just she might actually be. They might not have done that for the movie. Like, wait, are we gonna have to shoot her like they do on TV so she looks like a normal human? Or can, can we just film her the way she actually exists yeah. in this world? It's actually as... the only. <laughs> TV performance, like the only film that's never that didn't have to make Oprah look like do she's the forced not... perspective to make her look normal sized. <laughs> yeah, no one, no one had to be on Apple crates for this because she's actually a fifty foot tall jewel of a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I loved that. Like that was really fun to me. Uh, like great use of Oprah. Uh, and she, I mean, she's a good actress. Uh, yeah, she's like, I mean, I think about every time I've seen her in a movie, like she's, she's a good actress. Yeah. She's been Oscar nominated and, or should have been. And, but no. And and again, I like, I agree with that, but I also just think that like casting wise, like, because there is something like she does kind of seem ethereal and not quite human. And I think that that's like, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So no, that was really fun. Uh, I, I don't want to like, I don't have anything bad to say about Mindy Kaling. She just, she, I, you know, like I, I like that. I I thought there was something 
I don't think it was her performance. Like, I thought that character, like, I understood what the character was supposed to be and still, like, didn't, it didn't quite click, like, in the way. And I don't think it was her performance, but I just think that there was something that I felt lacking and I can't identify what it was, like. Well, I mean, I think that you, you're already limiting a character when they're, like, not having original thoughts, essentially, because she speaks in quotations. Yeah. Um. And so to like find those perfect ones that are still topical enough to like resonate with this, because this is a book from the early sixties. Um, and I did think I liked that. Like I thought they, the script did a really good job. Of yeah, no, updating, it did, but yeah. it's, but that's, that's a big ask of a writer and an actor. I think to deliver those lines in ways that feel like, grounded i guess i I mean she's not a grounded character that's sort of the point of it too um in that like sort of the the theory is that like she doesn't understand um the world enough so she's like well i can latch onto this idea so this is how i'm going to say it so they can understand try to see how i'm doing with things yeah, a little it, bit. Yeah, but it just again, maybe it just was the limitations of the doing a movie version versus the book version because it was like she did the quotes thing and then she dropped it uh, at first because like they were weakened, uh, but then also when she came back, kind of dropped it again, but then went back into it. So I think it was just like there was a little bit of like, uh, you know, I didn't quite. Like it, there was the consistency of the she speaks in quotes. Like, yeah, it didn't quite like register with me what how it worked. Yeah, it it, it was a little inconsistent. A little, um, a little sweaty. A little sweaty. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, like you know, also Chris Pine, who uh, Molly is very adamant that she thinks is the best Chris. I think he chooses uh, the the most interesting roles for sure. Like I, I'm always into a Chris Pine casting. So, so Molly hasn't seen any Chris Hemsworth movies. I mean, look like that's, you know, I'm with you. I'm team Hemsworth all the way. Uh, Same. Yeah. Thor Ragnarok. I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> but, uh, but I do like pine a lot. I like this. Stuff that he in chooses. The woods. Yeah. <laughs> I he's will. The, he's great. Anyways, enough to, about Chris Hemsworth. But to get That's on our, our next podcast is yeah, yeah. Chris Hemsworth is Pine versus Hemsworth, Hemsworth is our next uh, spinoff podcast. But I will say in Pine's defense, if you've never seen the Saturday Night Live sketch that he did uh, where there's like a SWAT team <laughs> that's like doing surveillance on him, it's great. Find that one. So Yeah, it's good. Uh, but beside the point, uh, we already talked about uh, Mrs. Murray. Like, I really loved that casting as well. Yeah, she's, I mean, she's a great actress uh, with also a great name, Gugu Mbatha-Ra. Yes. Yeah, no, fantastic. Uh, you know, you already said Michael Pena is terrible and you hated that he showed up. And then Hate it. Why, why did he, why did he even do this movie? <laughs> uh, uh, but no, uh, yeah, just all around. Zach uh, Galifianakis, um, David Oyelowo did the voice of the it at the end. Yeah, which did a great job with it. No, great. And I, yeah, I am such a fan of his. Like, He's a great actor. Yeah. No, he really is like in everything. Um, yeah. Uh, also, like Conrad Roberts, I, I, when he showed up, I really loved. He plays the elegant man like in the beginning, and then we see him yeah. like one more time. 
uh i i thought he was gonna be a bigger part of it but like he i really loved his you know he's in like two scenes but yeah mm-hmm. i really enjoyed you know like just amazingly like heartbreaking performance like just visually like in the 10 seconds that like he's in a scene yeah. but no i really enjoyed him as well too like yeah i just anyway like all of that to say the ensemble cast like great job like i really mm-hmm. yeah uh so that's a silver lining i don't know if you have uh yeah it, this this is i it's weird i feel like this is one of the toughest movies to come up with a silver lining for because I feel like it's one of the more unfairly maligned movies. Yeah, which for sure. I mean, the like I checked the the Rotten Tomatoes and the Metacritic scores for this movie are they're ridiculous. Like people, you know, you know, and of course I say that not having them in front of me. I don't know if you happen to have it's, them. Po- it was. I think the overall Metacritic was in like the fifties. Yeah, man. I think the Rotten Tomatoes one was even lower. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I'm trying to, and usually it's the other way around for almost every movie, but. Yeah, which is its own. I don't want to go on a whole tangent about why I think Rotten Tomatoes is a terrible metric of movie scores because it does tend to swing too far either way. Of like, you know, it if a, if like it it doesn't it have doesn't a lot give of the nuance. like the B minus review the B minus it should be. It gives it it's either a, pa- a thumbs up fail basically. Yeah, yeah, it's a thumbs up or thumbs down, which I think like yeah tends to really unfairly worked for, worked for Siskel and Ebert doesn't work for a giant review aggregator well if you're trying to give an overall sense of right. the movie yeah uh because also then it tends to you know like it it forces people to make that choice of either thumbs up or thumbs down and you know in a movie that's like I mostly liked that but it kind of bothered me sometimes it gets counted as like a, a negative review yeah so anyway but yeah, no, I think because and the other thing is like the movie, it's even I kind of want to say where there's not like things that are like so bad that you're like, oh, why is this here? But nor is anything so great. Be like, man, that is like, go see the movie for this thing. I want to say I kind of had this sense of like if I was a kid and I had just read this book and then I saw this movie, I feel like I would have loved this movie. And then it's like one of the ones that like. If you watch it as it, and honestly, like we should think about that. that there is a movie made for kids, which is not to mm-hmm. give it like a pass, but like, no, I do think that like, if you're a kid and you were into this series and you watched it, that you would have loved it. And then maybe you would have gotten older and it would have been in that unfortunate category of movies that in your memory, you're like, this is great. And then you're like, this isn't as good as I remember it being when I was 10, you know? Right. And like, I kind of think, cause like, I do think like as a kid, I, I really would have enjoyed it just like. Visually, I oh, that's the other thing I do want to point out as a silver lining is well, some of the special effects, particularly like when Reese Witherspoon turned into the, like the flying like leaf character. monster, leaf monster. That was not good. That was not great no. uh, CGI. But the worlds, the actual like locations that they went to, and which they did like obviously a lot of that was like finding locations, but then adding like the little touches of uh, special effects to them. Uh, cause I, that's the thing. I think that people tend to like, they'll be like the CGI was terrible. And it's like, you mean the, the, the CGI that you noticed, you know, like there's always a lot more CGI in movies than people are aware of, but like, especially for backgrounds and especially for like stuff like that, you didn't never even think about it being right. like CGI because it just feels real. You uh, people, they, when they talk about it, they tend to talk about like characters that don't look, you know, foreground uh, stuff, not background stuff. Yeah. 
Uh, so just, but yeah, like the worlds, like I, I think that that was, um, something that like, I do feel Ava DuVernay had like a very clear, like she saw all these worlds in her mind and they're very well realized and like very clear concepts and like through the costuming and like just the, the way everything looks and the, yeah. So the world building, like all of that stuff I thought was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. This is one of those movies where I'd be very surprised if there was like an Ava DuVernay cut of this movie, because it really feels like we saw the Ava DuVernay cut, you know? Yeah. No. Yeah. No, I would totally agree with that, that I, I don't think that there's anything, you know, like... I, I granted that's pure conjecture on my part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but also just to not lose it because I did actually, so 42% on Rotten Tomatoes uh, and then 53 on Metacritic, which are both way too low. For this movie yeah this i mean this is it's it's like a b minus movie to me i would say yeah probably yeah i think that's because it's it's a little sterile um i think the beginning definitely feels like a disney channel movie yeah it's like i said i feel like it starts it, it doesn't do itself any favors in the beginning and then i think it ends a lot stronger than it starts you know like the the second half, I think, works a lot better. But yeah, and it's, again, like, I, I do go back to, like, I'd love to see this movie. Like, that's my that's my Snyder Cut dream for this movie is this exact same movie, but with a different musical score. And just see how that works. Yeah, I, I think you might have a point with that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I will. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I think that's it. Um, I was thinking about something else that I didn't love about the movie, but we're done talking about things. So, um, but uh, yeah, but like, is there like, it's like, if I'm pitching this movie, go see this movie for this reason. Like, it's sort of a cop out, but it's like, because it's just a pretty good movie, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I like it's there. There isn't like anything shining the way like when we talked about John Carter, the way that like, um. Willem Dafoe's character or, you know, some of the other, those things are like, Oh, this stands out. Like this is a really like that the action was really good or whatever. Like there isn't, um, there isn't a moment like that in this movie. That's like, this is why you should ignore the reviews and go see this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I like, I want to say this too. Like, and I like one more thing that I want to say positive about the movie. And, and I want to like, I'm realizing that, uh, I'm kind of giving up, you know, I know everybody out there, you pick when, when you close your eyes and you picture me, you picture like leather jacket, skateboard, like, you know, I, I'm a cool guy, like, and I, I, I'm giving up some cool points, uh, and maybe possibly ruining my rep to say this, but I am a sucker for movies whose theme is like that you need to love other people and like <laughs> care about them. <laughs> and Like, I think that is a a part of why, again, to try not to ruin the end of the movie, but to say that, like, why the end resonated with me. And it's similar to, like, why the end of Guardians of the Galaxy really hits me of, like, I love movies where it's, like, the payoff is that, like, the hero of love wins. Yeah, the power of love wins. And the fact that, like, it is a movie that isn't, uh, you know, again, I'm trying to be vague, but the final confrontation isn't really, like you know guns Bronze firing or yeah like swords or it's not violence it really is just someone using love to defeat you know and hate. i will say that that's a huge that's i don't want to say that's an easy thing to write and have someone read 
but it's way easier to write that on a page than it is to put that on a screen and do this and make it interesting. Oh, no, to sell that is really hard, <laughs> which I think is why when it works, uh, I really am a fan of it. But I, I like that hit me. So I do want to just spotlight that as like a big plus for me for this movie is like, yeah, love wins. You know, that's that's not nothing. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not. Um and I will say that, like, if you're someone who loves the books, uh, I think you have to just prepare yourself for it probably not being the movie that you would have made if you were a filmmaker making the movie. Which is always um, good blanket advice if you love a book. Uh, because yeah, unless that always. book is like Fight Club or Lord of the Rings or like a couple other ones, uh, the movie is not yeah, going to be it's as a, good. It's, it's a short list. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but... Uh, yeah, but like, it's still a it's a good adaptation of the book, if not you know like a an accu- a Lord of the Rings style accurate adaptation. But it's it's it gets the th- it gets the book like clearly Ava DuVernay loved the book, um, and the screenwriters uh, you know love the book love the book and love the source material. So there's love for that source material, but because the book is like really well written, um. But like not doesn't put like everything about the book is not in the words on the page. Like it's the way that you relate to the words on the page, like especially I mean that's every book, but like especially with this book. Uh, So it this isn't going to be the movie that was going on in your head when you were reading it. Like that's something you just have to be aware of. Yeah. Uh, No, I think that's good advice. Uh, But yeah, I don't know if I, I would end by saying that if you know, you, this movie skated by you when it came out. Like it did me, like it did. I think a lot of us, like, uh, it's worth I was, watching. Tur- I was turned off by the reviews, honestly. Like I saw it got terrible reviews. I'm like, uh, yeah. I love, I, I the, like, there was definitely a point in my life where this was my favorite book. Like, yeah. Um, and so I was like, ah, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to watch a movie. I'm going to hate about a book that I love. So I didn't see it. And then eventually I think it was on Netflix for a while. And that's where I caught it the first time. And it was like, Oh, it's fine. Yeah. It's a good movie. It's fun. No, I think for sure. Like if you got some kids and, uh, you're, you're quarantined at home with them still, like, uh, this is a good one. Yeah. Put that one on. So, but it's, it's, it's because it's, yeah, it, it's good. It's a good movie. Yeah. Unfairly maligned. I think for sure. Unfa- uh, do we want to say this is the most unfairly maligned movie that we've talked about so far? Yeah, because even I mean John Carter, we said a lot of nice things about, but I I definitely understand where the, <laughs> the dislike of John Carter's <laughs> coming from. Yeah, I still think personally I, I like John Carter better. Yeah, but um, but I think this this has been of of the this is now the ninth movie we're talking about. This is, this is the most unfairly maligned move of the movies that we've talked about. Yeah. Where it's, and again, I mean, to your point of like, you didn't see this movie because the overwhelming consensus was like, it's not good. And I, I don't think that that's a fair assessment of this movie. Like I'm kind of surprised that, you know, yeah, it, it is a little sterile. It is a little bland at times, but there's some things that it hits like right on. And like the, the sort of the ticking clock part of the movie, they really hit really well. Like that third act ticking clock bit is like done really well. Um, I don't know. So we, uh, look, we we're starting a GoFundMe. If you want to donate to it, uh, we're trying to raise enough money to get Ludwig Gordonson to rescore the film. Yes. Uh, you just want to chip in. <laughs> you want to kick some, 
if you want to do that, um, go ahead. Just keep searching for it until it shows up. Yeah, just find Ludwig Gordonson and like slip him a twenty if you see him in like, the street. I'm sure he has. I'm sure if you search him on Venmo, he'll be there. <laughs> that guy's hard up for cash right now. Just make sure make sure it says uh, yeah for make sure you name it for yeah. rescoring Wrinkle in Time. All right. Well, I think we did it. Uh, if you want to hit everybody with our classic sign off, I think we're out. And that's the end of that chapter. <laughs> Silver Linings Playback is a production of HoboTrashCan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. Hey, this is Chris. And this is Joe from the Curioso Podcast. And we give our stamp of Curioso approval to the podcast that you're listening to right now.